We're going to pick it up in verse 13 and, by God's grace, make it to verse 35, the end of the chapter. So we're looking at the second half of Proverbs chapter 3 that I'm labeling the uh, praise and practicality of wisdom. Praise and practicality of wisdom. Now, uh, I'll explain that as we go, but uh, we have divided these first nine chapters, which recall the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs are distinctly different from chapter 10 on. Chapter 10 on, we'll see those short, pithy, proverbial sayings, some of which will consist, many of which will consist of only one verse. Uh, Many others will consist of two, three, sometimes even four verse proverbs. But in this section, chapters 1 to 9, we see it's a series of lectures of a father speaking to his son. It's a bit subjective where you divide those lectures, where one begins and ends and another begins. Um, we in our division have, have divided it into roughly 12 lectures in these nine chapters, uh, but obviously the seams are a bit subjective. We're going to see that this morning. The praise of wisdom is what we're calling the paragraph from verse 13 to verse 20, but it really goes really well with the next paragraph, though we have separated it uh, and call it a practical appeal for wisdom in verse 21 to 35. We're going to deal with those two lectures here this morning. Uh, we'll deal with them as one because their, their purpose is very similar, their structure is very similar. And so what we're going to see is that the purpose of really these two paragraphs, but we'll look first at verses 13 to 20, the purpose of this paragraph is to convince the son, right? So again, the father speaking to the son. And the purpose of this paragraph is to convince the son of the values of wisdom, So the father attempts to do this by heralding the praises of wisdom. In other words, he he tells us all the good things about wisdom. And the whole point is that he's attempting to persuade his son to be wise, to pursue wisdom. All right, so that's that's really the point of this paragraph. But if you got your Bible, let's read it together. Then we'll uh, examine it verse by verse. But Proverbs 3, verse 13, let's work our way down to verse 20. And then we'll pause there. He says this, Happy is the man that finds wisdom and the man that gets understanding. For the merchandise of it, or the profit or value, the return of it is better than the merchandise of silver and the gain thereof of fine gold. She is more, speaking of wisdom, she is more precious than rubies, and all the things that you can desire are not to be compared unto her. Verse 16, length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are shalom, peace. She is a tree of life, verse 18, to them that lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone that retains her. The Lord by wisdom has founded the earth. By understanding, he has established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths are broken up, and the clouds drop down dew. Now, this, this paragraph that is, again, attempting to promote the praiseworthiness of wisdom. It begins in verse 13 with the happy or blessed statement. Now, we've talked about this many times, particularly in our Psalter series, but this Hebrew word, ashari, is the Hebrew. This particular word is typically translated blessed or happy, uh, one of those two translations, but it's referring to someone who is satisfied. Uh, someone who is blessed by God, someone who is experiencing life the way God designed it. it. This is the word that is typically used in the formulation of a beatitude. 
And when I use the word beatitude, most of us begin to think of the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount with a series of beatitudes, blessed are statements. Beatitudes, however, are not unique to the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, there's many beatitudes in the scripture, and it's a worthwhile study to go through various passages, particularly like, for instance, the book of Proverbs, and just look at how many Beatitudes appear in the book of Proverbs. Or you could do the same thing in any of the prophetic books or the Psalms. We did a, a glance at that in our Psalter series as we looked at the Beatitudes of the Psalter. But the point of a Beatitude is to set forth the ideal life. My favorite translation of the word ashari, which is, it doesn't appear in many English translations, but in my mind it gets the word across, is it's the word enviable. Enviable. In other words, a beatitude is setting forth the ideal life that you ought envy, that you look at and say, I want to live like that because it is a life that is blessed by God. That's the idea. And so some will, will use the word enconium to describe, if you're into literary terms, the word enconium is simply a praise of a particular lifestyle. You're, you're, you're making it uh, heroic, right? You're exalting a particular person or lifestyle to say, that's the ideal life. That's the way that we should live. Well, a beatitude is doing that. And so this paragraph begins with a beatitude. He's saying, happy is the man. Blessed is the man. Enviable, satisfied is the man who finds wisdom. Now, of course, we've already seen this in our study thus far, but let me remind you that the wisdom that is here being addressed or described or applauded here in the book of Proverbs is different than the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world, which is merely the piling up of degrees or information. That idea, Proverbs uh, will oppose, right? I mean, it's not opposed to information, but it is the, the idea of wisdom, biblical wisdom, as displayed in the book of Proverbs, has a moral, ethical, spiritual component to it. It is more than raw information or data. For instance, we'll see Solomon later say in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 that that sort of vain pursuit of mere information is vain. It's empty. It doesn't bring the satisfaction that uh, you're looking for. In other words, many people pursue endless degrees out of a sense of insecurity. And so they just simply want to pile one degree upon the next, hoping that that will prove to the world their intelligence. Whereas the, the book of Ecclesiastes says that's vain. On the flip side, however, biblical wisdom, that is the fear of the Lord that brings wisdom, that proper attitude before God that brings proper actions toward God, that is the source of true happiness. That's what the, this verse is telling us. Happy, blessed is the man that finds wisdom and the man that gets understanding. Why? Well, verses 14 to 15 tell us because it's better, right? It's better than silver, gold, or rubies. Now, this term better is going to occur 17 times in the book of Proverbs. And this is, again, it's functioning the same way as a beatitude. It's trying to help set our priorities. It's trying to help us see according to the scripture, what we genuinely ought value. What should, right? Because that's what the word better means. It's a value statement sort of word. And the word better, occurring 17 times in the book of Proverbs, here occurs to describe how wisdom is better or is of greater gain than silver. In other words, he is saying that we need to, we ought to invest in wisdom more than silver and gold because wisdom brings better returns. 
Her value surpasses even rubies. In other words, I'm going to resist, but I could pause and really you know, make a stock market joke right about here, right? And say it's maybe not the best, safest bet, right, to, to uh, invest in, in certain things that you're hoping for a great return, but it only deceives you and ends up stealing your money, etc. Well, wisdom will never do that. Right? Wisdom is always worth the investment. That's the idea. Because wisdom's return is of great value. In other words, you invest in becoming wise, it will help in every area of your life. And we'll see that later on, in, even in this chapter, obviously throughout the book of Proverbs, how wisdom is better than silver, gold, rubies, etc. Wealth, it's better than that. Verse 16 and 17 goes on to describe... Why it's better? Because, verse 16 says, length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor. In other words, wisdom is seen as very gracious and giving. With both hands, she gives grace and blessing to those who receive her. And she gives particularly what riches cannot buy. Verse 16 describes, Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left, yes, riches. You can gain uh, material wealth by being wise. You can learn how to manage your material wealth with wisdom, thereby not being uh, wasteful. And we'll see much of that through the book of Proverbs. But notice it says length of days, and then it uses in the second line the word honor. Those are intangible things, right? Those are things that you can't purchase with gold or silver, but rather wisdom does grant it to you. Now, we've already talked about this. In fact, last time, back in verse 2, we saw this concept. Length of days, verse 2 of the same chapter, that is. Proverbs 3, verse 2. Length of days and long life and peace shall they add to you. In other words, we've already talked about that. We'll see it many other times. But the concept is that the quality of life is better. And often, the quantity of life is better for a wise person. Meaning, if you avoid doing stupid things with stupid people in stupid places at stupid times, then you're going to live longer and you're going to live better, right? In other words, there's a very common sense sort of statement being made by the book of Proverbs is don't be foolish. Foolishness leads to a shorter life and a life that's not only shorter, but it's less qualitative, right? You have more sorrow, more pain, more suffering, more difficulty when you pursue folly. But when you pursue wisdom... You have length of days and long life, honor, etc. All right. Well, verse 17, saying the same thing a different way, says, Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. And the idea is, again, wisdom is pleasant. It's pleasing. It grants joy, delight, and pleasure. And it's the word, uh, I mentioned it as we read through it just a moment ago, but the Hebrew word behind the word peace, we'll talk about this a little bit more in the morning service, actually, uh, as we look at the book of Ephesians. But the word is shalom, and shalom is the Hebrew word that is really loaded with more significance than our English word peace. Our English word peace we tend to define as tranquility or the absence of conflict. While that is absolutely true, the Hebrew word is more than that. It's more than simply the absence of conflict. The Hebrew word shalom is really the idea of the presence of blessing and goodness, uh, in fact, some will even translate it wholeness, as in you're not missing any key component. You have all that is necessary. It's the, it's the presence of blessing and joy. 
And so that's what wisdom offers. Those are intangible things. You can't purchase those with gold, silver, precious stones, but wisdom grants it to those who uh, receive her. In fact, let's dip into this idea a little bit uh, deeper, the idea of honor in the book of Proverbs. You see it surface there in verse 16, that riches and honor are in her left hand. The word honor, of course, is, is a very important word that we'll see many times throughout the book of Proverbs, throughout the scripture at large. But the Hebrew word is kavod, and you've probably heard me describe this before, but kavod, honor, sometimes translated glory. It's, it can be translated either way. The root idea behind that Hebrew word is actually the word weight, splendor. Sometimes it's then by implication or extension, also referring to a good name or reputation. This particular word will occur 16 times in the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs has a lot to teach us about it. It's really rather fascinating. Let's take just a moment to glance through some passages in Proverbs that speak to this. But first, the book of Proverbs informs us that honor comes as a result of having wisdom. Right? That's what our verse is telling us right here in chapter 3 and verse 16. But also, we see the same idea down in verse 35, which we'll get to in a few moments, Lord willing. But he says in verse 35, The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the promotion of fools. That word glory is the same word honor. Glory. We'll see the same idea again in chapter 8 and verse 18. When we get there, but it'll say, Riches and honor are with me. This is wisdom speaking. Lady Wisdom is speaking in chapter 8. And she says, uh, Wisdom and honor, or glory, excuse me, riches and honor are with me. Yea, durable riches and righteousness. Right? The idea of durable riches. There's a, there's a blessing, there's a wealth that wisdom affords that is different than mere material wealth. In fact, it's more enduring. However, on the flip side, go to Proverbs 26, verse 1 and verse 8. It tells us that honor avoids the fool. Proverbs 26, verse 1 says, As snow in summer and rain in harvest, so honor is not seemly for a fool. <laughs> right? And I know it's happened here. Right? I mean, I've, I've heard, long heard the boast that the only month that hasn't snowed here is August. Is that true? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying. So... When that happens, I've heard the story. I wasn't here yet. I don't think I was living here yet. But I've heard the story of when everyone was at the uh, 4th of July parade and it snowed that day. So let me just ask you, was that a welcome snow flurry? Were people happy about that? Was it fitting? Was it appropriate? No, right? I mean, that's what the proverb is saying. As snow in summer, rain in harvest. Right? He says it doesn't fit. So honor is not seemly for a fool. It, It doesn't fit. Yeah. Oh, the Basque Festival, and it snowed, right? Talk about getting rained out on a parade, right? But it was snow, right? Oh, man, bummer. Verse 8 says the same thing. He says, as he that binds a stone in a sling, so is he that gives honor to a fool. In other words, binding a stone in a sling is the idea of putting a weapon in your hand. It's dangerous. And when you honor a fool, that's dangerous. When you give a fool position and power and authority, that is reckless. You're going to end up with disaster on your hands, right? That's what he's saying. And so this idea is honor is the result of having wisdom, but honor avoids the fool, or the fool is dangerous when you give him honor. True honor, however, follows true or genuine humility. Again, we've already looked at this a little bit, but go to Proverbs 15, verse 33. Let me just read a few of these. Proverbs 15, 33 
It says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. We already looked at this verse when we were looking at the fear of the Lord several weeks back, but notice the second line. The before honor is humility. Chapter 18, verse 12, says something very similar. It says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. Right? Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. We're proud, we're arrogant, we think we got this. But before genuine honor is humility. Proverbs 22, verse 4 says, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Remember this? We talked about, Again, we saw this verse as well back when we were studying the fear of the Lord. But by humility and the fear of the Lord, which those two things are seen as synonymous. Notice they're in parallel. By humility and fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. And then Proverbs 29, verse 23, says something very similar. Proverbs 29, 23, says, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. So true honor comes as a result of having wisdom. It avoids the fool. It's dangerous for a fool. But it, it's sourced in humility. True honor follows or comes from, is sourced in genuine Humility. Then we have other Proverbs that get more specific of what does humility look like in the life? Well, let's look at that. Chapter 20, verse 3, for instance, Proverbs 20, verse 3, tells us that ceasing from a quarrel is one thing, practical thing that brings honor. He says in Proverbs 20, verse 3, it's an honor for a man to cease from strife, but every fool will be meddling. In other words, to rephrase that, any idiot can start a fight. Right? But it takes a wise man to stop one. Ouch. Ouch. Right? That hurts. Thank you, Solomon. But look at now chapter 11, verse 16. Graciousness also brings honor. You want to be honorable? Be gracious. Proverbs 11, verse 16 says, A gracious woman retains honor, and a strong man uh, retains riches. In other words, it's making a comparison. Just like you can't take riches from a strong man. Like if he's stronger than you, good luck. You're not going to take his stuff. So you can't take honor from a gracious woman. That gracious woman holds on to it. And you can't take it from her. Because the graciousness, her, her demeanor and her giving nature brings her honor that cannot be taken away. Chapter 21, verse 21 tells us that righteousness brings honor. Look at this, Proverbs 21, 21. He says, He that follows after righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. Following after, pursuing, make it a, making it a priority in your life to pursue righteousness and mercy, which that in and of itself is, that you know, deserves a sermon in a sermon, but because those two things are often viewed as opposites, righteousness, truth, versus mercy, but they find perfect balance in God and his character. Right? Psalm 85, for instance, says, Mercy and truth have kissed each other in God. You know, in God's character, we see a perfect balance between justice, righteousness, and mercy. And that's where when we learn that sort of balance, particularly in our relationships, particularly if you're a parent right, or uh, you're in any realm of authority that you have, you need to understand these two principles and how they interplay. Justice, righteousness, don't be compromising truth. And yet, on the other hand, learning mercy and grace 
and when and where to extend that. He says, you do that, you find life, righteousness, and honor. That is an honorable person that, ha- that holds do- those two things in balance. Proverbs 25, verse 2, also says that studying out a matter brings honor. Proverbs 25, 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. And in this context in particular, it's talking about, again, the king who is, it's probably in this uh, verse, viewing the king as also the judge. In other words, a judge and a king in ancient societies were considered typically one and the same. And so the idea is a court case is brought before the king and, and, and and it can be, you know, applied in other scenarios as well. But if you think about it in a judicial setting, then it, it you know, makes sense, is that the king, rather than simply believing the first thing he hears, he's going to search out the matter. Does that make sense? In other words, wisdom hears both sides of the story. Don't just hear what one dude says and jump and take his side, because he might be the fool, and you just believed a fool. Rather, search out a matter. Investigate. Weigh the options. When you do that, you're honorable. Yes? Isn't there another Robert that talks about that very thing that, um, like a courtroom type setting, says that somebody's case sounds right until he gets cross-examined? That's exactly right. That's another Proverbs. Everyone's case sounds right until he's cross-examined, right? In other words, you hear the first side of the story, you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I totally get it. And then you hear the second side of the story, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> There's two sides to this story. Yeah, you guys say something? That's right. <laughs> yes. All right. Did you hear that? that was, that's a good example. You know, like Darius in the book of Daniel, or uh, we see, in, you know, Haman going before uh, King what, Ahasuerus and saying, hey, why don't we make this law? And they're only, you know, making a law to try and applaud the king, right? They're stroking his ego. And the king's like, that sounds like a good idea. And then he does it. And then it's like, man, it gets him in all sorts of trouble, right? And that's exactly true is, is we need to, and this, isn't this true with parenting? Have you ever done this, right? I mean, my kids do this all the time. They run into the room and then they say, hey, so-and-so did something to me. Okay, right? I mean, when you hear that, you're like, oh man, well then justice needs to be enforced. And then you go out and talk to the other kid and it's like, well, yeah, they kicked me first, right? And it's like, well, okay. So, you know what I'm saying? There's two sides to that story. In other words, before you level justice, you better search out the matter first, right? And that's just common sense, but that's what brings honor because so many times we, we you know, impromptu decisions are foolish. You need to search it out. And so, but yet on the other hand, one more thought on on honor before we move on. If you're still there in Proverbs 25, look at verse 27, end of the chapter. He says, it is not good to eat much honey, so for men to search out their own glory is not glory. In other words, if you're an honorable person, by examining your own honor, it actually depletes it. I love that, right? I've told you the story before. It's not in the book of Proverbs, but it well illustrates the book of Proverbs, right? There's this committee that gives an honor, honorable medal to the most humble man on the earth, and then they take it away because he wore it. Right? Are you with me? Does that make sense? When you pride yourself in your humility, 
you actually just lost humility, right? When you pride yourself in your honor, you just lost your honor. In other words, that, I mean, it's just a, it's a profound concept that honor is something, it's one of those intangibles. People know an honorable person, but if you vaunt yourself as honorable, you're actually a fool. You're not honorable, right? That's what he's saying. So back to Proverbs 3. This is a huge theme throughout the, uh, throughout the book, and, and we'll see it many times as, you, as you've already, you know, as, as we've demonstrated in the last few minutes. But honor is something that wisdom brings, honor. Well, he goes on in verse 18 to describe another benefit of wisdom as he's praising wisdom to his son, trying to help his son to see the value of it. He says in verse 18 that she, wisdom, is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her. Happy is everyone that retains her. Again, this is one of my favorite pictures for wisdom in the book. Uh, Because if you recall our, our study in the book of Genesis years back, we camped on this idea But according to verse 18, wisdom is pictured as a tree of life. That is, it reverses the curse and restores Eden. That's what is is, is being described. Let me explain that. If you were to go back, for instance, to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we won't take the time to march through uh, those chapters and trace every occurrence of this word, but if you trace the idea of life in the book of Proverbs, it parallels the book of Genesis, particularly the word life in the plural. In Hebrew, if you want to really make something emphatic, you put it in the plural. And so you have this interplay in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 between the singular form life, which is hayah in Hebrew, versus the plural form hayim. Now, that becomes very significant as we work our way through the book of Genesis as well as the book of Proverbs. Now, you know, don't worry, we're not going to look up all these references today, but the word hayim in the plural, all right, so it's, 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 you don't see that normally in, in English translations because they just translate it life. But in the original, there's a distinction between life in the singular, life in the plural. Life in the plural, or hayim, occurs 24 times in the book of Proverbs. And there's the references. We won't go to all of those today. We will march, you know, we'll see them as we march our way through uh, the book of Proverbs. But what I want you to see is that hayim, in the plural, is describing the ideal life. So it's not just talking about being alive. It's talking about experiencing life. Life the way God designed it to be. It's a, it's a statement on qualitative life. So hayim, as you work your way, and we see it in Genesis, and we see it again paralleled here in the book of Proverbs, hayim is life as it is intended by God. It's the ideal life. Yet as you work your way through the scriptures, you discover that sin depreciates life, both in quantity and quality. Sin robs from life. It's so profound as you're working your way through the book of Genesis, it describes how hayim, it's the first time it's used as God breathes into man the breath of hayim. He has a qualitative existence that the animal kingdom does not have. The animals have hayah, they have life, they're alive, but they do not have hayim. They do not have this qualitative life. And this idea is really profound because once sin enters in Genesis 3, it's limited. It says now you have days to your life. You have a limited amount of days because of sin. Why? Because days of your life is simply another way of saying death is coming. Death is coming. Sin depreciates the value and quality and the quantity of life. 
But what the book of Proverbs is doing is it's picking up on, the, on that theme that you first encounter in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and it's saying that the path of the ideal life, this side of heaven, is found by pursuing wisdom. In other words, because sin has entered the human race, quality and quantity of life has been depreciated. However, do you want the best possible life that you can have this side of heaven? You're still going to combat sin, right? There's still sickness and disease and death all around us, but do you want the best possible life this side of heaven? You want Chaim? You want the tree of life? You live wisely. You embrace wisdom. If you were to trace this, just for instance, here's some, again, we're not going to look up all 24 references uh, where the term Chaim appears through the book of Proverbs. I would encourage you to do that on your own. But here's the gist of it. This sort of qualitative life, life as it was intended to be, spiritual life, you might even say, is despised by the strange woman, according to Proverbs 2 and Proverbs 5. However, the instructions of a father, wisdom, and the commandments and the fear of the Lord, as well as the tongue of the wise, you listen to those who are wise, all of those things lead to life. You want the ideal life? According to Proverbs, you listen to the instructions of a father, a wise father. You pursue wisdom. How do you do that? You listen to God's commands. You fear Yahweh. You listen to the tongue of the wise. In other words, don't listen to fools, but listen to the tongue of the wise. These things will lead to an, the ideal life. They will lead to Chaim. But again, you have to listen. That's the key component of becoming wise, is you must listen. And we see that, uh, again, throughout the book of Proverbs. We're going to touch upon this many different times, but it's a hugely important theme. So he says, verse 18, She's a tree of life to them who lay hold upon her, and happy is everyone that retains her. Verse 19 and 20, he goes on to describe how wisdom ought be viewed as valuable because it works it's effective. Verse 19 and 20 describes how the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. It's a key component in creation, in other words. By understanding, God has established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and the clouds dropped down dew. In other words, verse 19 and 20 is pointing us to creation, the acts of creation in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, as well as God's maintaining of creation. It evidences the wisdom of God. In other words, look at the world around you. It's beautiful, it's complex, and it illustrates the manifold wisdom of God. You want to see how wise God is? Study creation. I love reading about creation scientists. You know, those who uh, study the minutia of, of creation and science, and yet they discover that there's an intelligence there that is so far infinitely beyond human intelligence. It, it's a marvel when you look at the wisdom of God displayed in creation. And this idea is, of course, as, as Charles Bridges puts it, the universe is a parable. It's a mirror of the gospel. I like that. The universe is a parable. It's a mirror of the gospel. We look at the goodness and greatness of God in creation as it is displayed in creation. And the idea that the author of Proverbs here is getting at, that Solomon seems to be trying to communicate to Rehoboam, his son, is that God used wisdom in creating the earth. So, in other words, wisdom is woven into the fabric of the universe. 
Therefore, we must learn to live how God designed us to live. Illustration, you don't use a screwdriver to pound in nails, nor do you use a hammer to unscrew screws. It's not going to work. You have to use the tool for the job that it was designed to accomplish. You're You're a fool otherwise. Well, life is a lot like that. God designed us. He's our creator. We are his creatures. He made the world in which we live. And he's told us through his commandments the best way to be a creature in his creation. And so if we follow God's design, it works. It makes sense. If we deny God's design, it's not going to work, right? It's just you're not, it, it, life is going to start getting frustrating. It's going to start falling apart at the seams. Yes? Yeah, <laughs> isn't that great? That's great. Secular scientist trying to explain the origin of the moon. And he's like, man, the probability of that happening, right? It's like, it just doesn't work. And I love that because that's, I mean, it's an honest assessment of the facts. Is when you start thinking of all the criteria, po- you know, necessary to make that possible, it's like, whoa, this is so improbable. It's absurd to believe it, right? And you realize absurd is actually a mathematically defined word, right? It's like if it passes a certain probability, then it's considered absurd. It's so unlikely that it's, it's stupid to believe it. And evolution is way past that <laughs> in the probability spectrum. Exactly. And so in other words, creation, believing a creator made creation, it gives us an answer for that. And we're like, oh, we can answer that. No, that's good. You got a hand up there, Levi? Oh, and then we'll, go ahead. Oh, thank you. It's any, the word absurd is defined by the probability of anything that is one out of 50 zeros after it. Okay, so the number one with 50 zeros after it, if it's a one in that number chance of probability of happening, it's considered absurd. Thank you. Yes? It's good. Yep. That's good. That's excellent. One of my, my favorite uh, teachers used to say it this way. He, he got a secular degree uh, and then got saved later in life, but he was, uh, he was studying science. And his science teacher, and this was you know, several decades ago, it was a secular science teacher that happened to be a Christian, I would suspect. But the science teacher was sitting there teaching his class. He says, listen, in this class, I can, I can show you how creation works. You know, like I can show you math and matter and, you know, physics, and we can talk about all of that stuff. He says, but to figure out why it's here and how it got here, he says, I can't teach you that. You got to go to Sunday school. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly right. Yeah. Amen. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Who would talk about the insufficiency in the body and she'd go, But that just happens. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but that just happened, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that, I mean, and that's, I mean, that, that's the biblical storyline. That's the message: is there is a God. He's our creator. He's our. That's where we come from. And if you accept that premise, then that's the Book of Proverbs is building off that premise. He's saying if there is a creation made by a creator, and you're a creature inside of that creation, then there's a way we are to operate within it. God designed us a particular way. And if you violate God's design, it doesn't work. And so wisdom is knowing God's commandments, fearing God, living in accordance to God's commandments, and now I'm a creature operating properly within my environment. And God blesses. Life works. Right? That's the book of Proverbs. In fact, taking it a step further, notice this second paragraph, verses 21 to 35. Let's notice how he's building off of this. In other words, the the purpose of that prior paragraph, verses 13 to 20, is very similar to what we're going to see in this paragraph, verse 21 to 35. And it's namely, the purpose is to convince the son of the values of wisdom. So he praises wisdom in all of her beauty and blessedness in verses 13 to 20. But now he gets a little more practical by pointing out several practical results of wisdom. That if we are wise, this is what results from it. Verse 21 to 23. First, or 35, but let's read 21 and 23. He says, My son, let not them depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So shall they be life, there's one of the occurrences of chayim, life in the plural, so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. He says, then thou shalt uh, walk in your way safely and your foot will not stumble. All right, blessing number one, practical blessing number one, if we live wisely according to wisdom, is it prevents one's feet from slipping. This is an interesting comparison, but in in Psalm 73, and I'll just briefly make this uh, observation and we'll move on. We've given a whole lecture to this in the past. So we do have, you know, if you want to dive deeper into Psalm 73, it's one of my favorite Psalms. Um, I say that a lot. I have a lot of favorites, but Psalm 73 is one of the first that really, when I was just reading my Bible consistently, you know, early high school years, it really grabbed hold of me. And it's interesting because the psalmist is describing, in verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. Why? He says, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to describe how when he sees wicked people having a good time in life, that they seem to be just coasting through life, and yet the righteous suffer at times. He's frustrated by that, so much so that he says, my foot had well nigh slipped. In other words, he's using that as a description of a faltering faith, that he's having a crisis of faith. Now, if you were to go through the psalm, he discovers a truth that changes everything, and he discovers it when he goes into the sanctuary of God. He goes and he spends quiet time with God, if you will. He reads his Bible. He prays. He goes to God with his dilemma. And God reveals to him that there is an end to the wicked. That the wicked might look like they're having a successful, fun, beautiful life. He says, but it's just, you know, smoke and mirrors. He says, you just wait. 
because the end of the wicked is sure. They will fall. They will undergo judgment. He says, yet the end of the righteous is blessing and eternal life. When the psalmist discovered that, in other words, when he went to God, heard God's words, he gained wisdom. And he then describes himself at the end of the psalm as being steady, confident, faithful in life. He has the answers to face life. Whereas before, it says, my foot had well nigh slipped. I was just about to throw in the towel and be done with this whole God thing because it didn't make sense. And then he goes to God, he gets the answer, and he stands firm. That's what, in essence, it illustrates well what Solomon is here saying in the book of Proverbs, that he says, you hold on to sound wisdom and discretion. They will be life to your soul and grace to your neck so where, to where you do not stumble through life. You can have the answers to face life. He goes on in verses 24 to 26 to describe, he says, when you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yea, when you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Be not afraid of sudden fear, neither of the desolation of the wicked. When it comes, for the Lord shall be your confidence and shall keep your foot from being taken. Again, he's simply elaborating upon the same basic idea that your foot will not stumble, your foot will not slip, you can face life, but now he uses a different picture, that of sleeping sweetly, sleeping like a baby, as we say. How many nights of sleep are lost because of anxiety, guilt, shame, fear? And when you consider all of that lost sleep, he says, well, what if you just lived wisely? You experienced God's forgiveness, his grace. You live in such a way where you're avoiding the major pitfalls of life. You sleep better. You sleep more soundly. It's actually considered a blessing from God, right? We used Darius as an example earlier, Daniel chapter 6. What happened when he made that ridiculous law that gets Daniel thrown in the lion's den? Darius is up all night. He can't sleep. Why? Because he has a guilty conscience. The best guy in his government, he just threw to the lions. And Darius is like, man, I'm an idiot. Like, I really blew that one. And he lost a whole night's sleep. And then in the morning, he runs, right? And he says, Daniel, Daniel, did your God deliver you? And Daniel's like, hey, man, yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> right? I mean, it's a remarkable scene. But the point is, it illustrates the flip side. Now, to illustrate positively... For instance, we won't go there for a second time, but Psalm 3, verse 5 is David writing a psalm when he's fleeing from his son Absalom. His son has just created a political coup trying to take over the Israeli government. David is running for his life. He prays to God for help. That's Psalm 3. And then he, he, he describes in there in verse 5 how he can lay down and sleep because God is with him. Wow, in the midst of that sort of chaos, David can lie down and sleep. He can get a good night's sleep. Why? Because he trusts God. And the reality is that when we live this way, we don't have to worry about tomorrow. We don't have to worry about financial crisis, etc. Why? Because one's ways are laid and fortified. We've been using wisdom and discretion. We've been walking with God. And as a result of this, wisdom affords us the ability to live with confidence and freedom from fear of disaster because we avoid foolish recklessness and we enjoy resting or trusting in Yahweh. There is a higher power that I can trust in. 
And so I can sleep. I can give it over to him. And there's so much blessing in that. Solomon is trying to teach his son Rehoboam. Well, then what he does is in verses 27 to the end of the chapter, particularly verse 27 to 31, he gives several practical pieces of advice that wisdom helps us to to live by. And then we'll see in verse 32 to 35, he gives us the motivation for why. All right, let's just walk through this briefly. But he says, verse 27 to 31, he says, Withhold not good from them to whom it is due, when it is in the power of your hand to do it. Say not to your neighbor, go and come again, and tomorrow I will give. Then, or when, you have it by you. Devise not evil against your neighbor, seeing he dwells securely by you. Strive not with a man uh, without cause, if he has done you no harm. Envy not the oppressor, and choose none of his ways. And then you'll see, verse 32, he says, For, or because... So he's going to give us the motivations in verses 32 to 35 of why we should do what he's imploring us to do in verses 27 to 31. All right, but here's the point. The wise man, Solomon, now comes to teach his son Rehoboam some very specific practical points to illustrate the practicality of wisdom. And what we see, particularly in these verses, verse 27 to 31, is we, we see five prohibitions, things that you should not do in order to guide our relationships with others. This leads us to the basic observation that many troubles in our life revolve around our relationships. Does that not ring true? Is that not true in your life? So many of the troubles in our life, not all, but many, revolve around our relationships. So Proverbs, one of the key points of the book of Proverbs is to help us learn good social skills so we don't sabotage our own lives. So many people have a hard time in life because they're hard to get along with. They're just rude. They're, they're arrogant. They're deceitful, selfish individuals. And as a result of that, man, life is hard for them because nobody wants to get, you know, they're hard to get along with. No one wants to be around them. But he says in these verses, he implores us essentially to be a good neighbor. Do you see that? He gets very specific by giving us these basic things. Don't be selfish or stingy. If you can help somebody, do it. And do it right now. If you can do it, if it's in your power, within your capability, be a help. Don't be selfish or stingy. Rather be attentive and helpful. Just be a helpful person with those around you. That's what he's getting at, verse 27, verse 28. He also, verse 29, describes that we should not breed suspicion. Right? We shouldn't actually go and devise evil against our neighbor, seeing, he says, he dwells securely by you. In other words, he says, a good neighbor is one of the greatest resources you can have in life. Good friendships is one of the great, and we're, I got a whole lecture later on that, where Proverbs has a lot to say about being and having and developing good friends. And it's really a, a key component to life. But to have good friends, you need to be a good friend. And that's really his point in verse 29. He says, to uh, be good to your neighbor. Why? Because he dwells securely by you. In other words, what happens when you're in trouble and you need help nigh at hand? Well, what if you're one who has alienated all of your neighbors and your friends? What if you don't have any friends because you're a fool? Well, then now when you need help, you don't have help because you chased it off, right? So he says, how about you have a neighbor nearby that you can dwell securely by them? And again, 
uh, I know it's still true in our society, but all the more true back then when you go back into antiquity and you didn't have much in their cities today that are experiencing, right, kind of a lack of an effective police force, you know what I'm saying? Um, your security was your own home defense and your nearest neighbors. That's, your safety resided in that. And if there was a burglar, if there was a highway robber, whatever, you travel in numbers, right? You secure yourself with numbers, with, with good, dependable people that you can rely upon because you're not going to have you know, all the wisdom, savvy, and resources to overcome every problem. So you need help. So he says, be that kind of friend. Don't devise evil against your neighbor. Don't take his stuff. Right? and be, be stealing or you know, trying to take advantage of your neighbor because there's coming a day you're going to need that neighbor. So he says, you be good to that neighbor. Same thing in verse 30. He says, strive not with a man without cause if he's done you no harm. We talked about it earlier a little bit. But the idea being, you know, don't, uh, don't be you know, a fool because any fool can start a fight, but it takes a wise man to stop one. Right? That's the idea. Is you don't, don't be foolish and just start picking fights with your neighbors. How many stories have you heard? I could give you several. Where so-and-so was, was like, you know what? I'm just going to assert my rights. I'm just going to go. And, and, they, and they, they make these really bad relationships with their neighbors. And then the neighbor's just out to get them. You know what I'm saying? It's like it, life is now hard. It's like you created a problem because you weren't following, again, proverbial wisdom. Don't strive with a man without cause if he has no, if he's done you no harm. He goes on, verse 31, don't envy an oppressor and choose none of his ways. In other words, there are those who are bad neighbors and they're oppressive to other people. They take other people's stuff. They take advantage of other people. They're oppressors. And for, if you're not careful, you might think that they're getting ahead in life because they just stole stuff or they just took advantage. They just were deceitful hey, can I borrow your rake and never bring it back? You know what I'm saying? And it's like, well, I just got a free rake, right? It's like, well, I should do that next time, right? And it's like, no, don't do that. Don't envy the oppressor. Don't, he says, don't desire any of his ways. Rather, you be an honest person. You be a good neighbor. Don't breed suspicion. Don't falsely accuse them. But rather, give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't jump to conclusions and don't envy the oppressor, right? In other words, I'm just simply rephrasing some of the key concepts that we see here in these verses, but he's teaching us what it looks like to be a good neighbor. So he says, you do that, but why should we do it? Well, verse 32 to 35, we'll wrap up the chapter with these observations, but in verses 32 to 35, these verses form the motivations to follow those prohibitions, right? He told us what not to do in verse 27 to 31, but now he's telling us why we shouldn't. In other words, what is motivating us? Well, notice in each of these verses, from verse 32 all the way to verse 35, each of them pre present a pair of motivations by presenting it either in the uh, positive or in the negative. Right? It's going to give you a pair of motivations. Notice first verse 32. He says, For the froward is abomination to the Lord, but his, that is God's secret, is with the righteous. First motive, why should we live this way? Well, because, again, notice how it presents both a negative and a positive motivation. One can either be an abomination to God or be God's confidant. You want to be God's confidant? You want God's secret to dwell with you? 
This is a really cool idea that I don't have the time to develop, but we have in the past. Psalm 25, verse 14, makes the same concept. Uh, but the idea is that Yahweh brings the righteous into his confidence. I, I love, there's lots of examples. I have several verses up there. But Genesis 18, 17, God is walking, right, with uh, Abraham towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, Abraham's my friend. So I should tell him what I'm about to do. And he tells him what's going to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham pleads for Lot. You know the story. But the point is, I love that. God says, Abraham's my friend. So I should tell him what I'm about to do. In other words, God took Abraham into his confidence. He became his confidant. Why? Because he was in relationship with Yahweh. He trusted Yahweh. He loved Yahweh. And so Yahweh gave him insider information, if I can put it that way. And when we read the scripture, when we follow God and his ways, we have insider information. We have the ability to live life with skill and wisdom because God has given us the secrets to life. It is really profound. But if we ignore God, he says, well, then we become an abomination to him. So do you want to be an abomination to God or God's confidant? Verse 33, same sort of thing. Notice how it parallels the verse by also granting a positive and a negative motivation. He says, the curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, but he blesses the habitation of the just. Again, motivation. You can receive God's blessing or God's curse. It's really that simple. You can obey God and receive his blessing. You can disobey God, disregard all of his ways, and receive his curse. It's one or the other. And notice in particular, he describes how the curse of the Lord rests not only upon you as an individual, but upon the household of the wicked. This is, again, a sermon in a sermon that we don't have time to develop, but the curse of the Lord rests upon the household of the wicked, which means it includes his children, his tribe, his clan, his economic circle, etc. In other words, sin impacts those around us. For instance, and you can go check it out on your own, Deuteronomy 29, verse 18 to 21, describes a man who hears God's word being read. I love this passage. He says, woe unto that man who listens to God's words being read. And he's talking specifically about the curses and blessings that just was, you know, were read in chapter 28. He says, and they listen and they say, eh, I think I'm smarter than God. I'm paraphrasing. But they say, I, I don't think I need to listen to God. God says that's a curse to do that, but he's, it goes on to say he blesses himself, but I can still do that and get away with it. And he says, if you are that man, you're going to lead to rottenness in your life and in your family. That's a profound concept. Verse 34, notice the same pattern. He says, surely he scorns the scorners, but he gives grace to the lowly. Same thing, positive, negative, positive, negative. God scoffs at the scoffers. I love that. You scorn God. You want to make a mockery of God? No problem. He's going to turn and make a mockery out of you. But he gives grace to the humble. We don't have the time to go to all these passages, but I've pointed this out before. This is one of the universal biblical principles, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter is going to talk about this. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, James 4.6, same thing. Psalm 138, Psalm 2. We'll see it here uh, in Proverbs 3. It's all over the place. It's really interesting, but God is saying he's going to resist those that resist him, but he gives grace to the humble. And then last but not least, he says in verse 35, the wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the promotion of fools. Again, positive, negative motivation. The ultimate end of wisdom and folly is given in this verse. Not only shame versus honor, but also even partaking of God's glory. Like we talked about earlier, 
the idea of glory, the wise inherit glory. The word glory can be translated honor. In other words, a sense of honor and good reputation that you have in this life. But you can also insert there the idea of inherit ultimate glory. In other words, this is we, the New Testament makes this clearer, but those who walk with God will one day partake of his glory. That is, dwell in his immediate presence for all of eternity. Right? So there's, you could really have a dual application to that verse. All right, I'm out of time. But whew, look at that. We just squeaked in to the end of the hour and uh, the end of the chapter. So let's close in prayer. Next time, we'll start in chapter four. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and this passage of Scripture that praises the practical value of wisdom in our lives. We ask that you would help us to learn to live wisely as you are attempting to persuade us here in this passage. Lord, may we live this way for your honor and for your glory as well as our own good. Your living for your glory is our ultimate good. So we ask your blessing in this way and in this regard. And we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Next service will start 15 minutes.